you have a copy of scripture, we're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. I invite you to open there, Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 26 to 31 this morning of Hebrews chapter 10. The title of this message is A Fearful Warning of Future Judgment. Fearful warning of future judgment. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much, more, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray for this message this morning. Father, I pray that you would take your word this morning and apply it to the hearts of everyone that is here. Father, I have nothing worthy to say, so may what be said be what you want said. May I not preach in my own strength, but yours. Father, where conviction is needed, may we be convicted. Where grace is needed, may we experience grace. Humble us in your sight this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible has some very hard passages of Scripture difficult for us to grasp and if we're going to understand the full counsel of the word of God then we would do well to not just skip over those passages that seem difficult in fact some have come to the point where they try to erase hell completely from the Bible because it just does not sound nice I can remember um, when I was younger and a student pastor I was going through some evangelism training and we were going uh, to go out into the streets and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. And the guy that was doing the training uh, said to us, don't talk about hell. Charles Spurgeon told about a church that was asked to accept as their pastor a man who did not believe in hell. Their response was, you have come to tell us that there is no hell. If your doctrine is true, we certainly do not need you. And if it's not true, we don't want you. So either way, we can do without you. Today's passage is a hard passage. It speaks of a future judgment. It's not a pleasant little passage of scripture. In fact, it says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And I know there are some famous leaders who deny the doctrine of hell. We must know that Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone else in the entire Bible. 
We can't claim to be followers of Christ and yet deny the doctrine of eternal punishment. The doctrine of eternal punishment has great ramifications. Spurgeon said, if you think lightly of hell, then you will think lightly of the cross. Think little of suffering of lost souls and you will soon think little of the Savior who delivers you from them. Jonathan Edwards used uh, verse 31 of our text for the message that he wrote, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. God used that sermon by Edwards to convert many people to Christ. Edwards wrote the message to fight what was known as the halfway covenant, which was an attempt to keep as many people as possible under the influence of the church, even though they were not professed believers. If you have never read that sermon, I would encourage you to do so. Edwards had a passionate love for God and for his flock. Edwards was so concerned with the grace of God that he attempted to give the people a glimpse of hell so that they would run to God's grace. Listen, there are only two options that everyone is faced with on the face of this earth when it comes to eternity. And it's eternity in heaven with Christ or eternity in hell apart from Christ. The text is making it clear that it is a fearful warning of a future judgment. It's a difficult text because of the subject. We live in an age of humanism. We think of good mainly in human terms and therefore whatever is best for the most humans is what is ultimately best. And for this reason, we banish hell from scriptures because we say it's not the best for most humans. However, the difficulty is not just because of the subject, but there's also some difficulty in the interpretation of this passage of scripture. Mainly, the question is this, who is this passage of scripture speaking about? So I have to take some time in the beginning here, in the introduction, to address this because it's vital for the application of the passage of Scripture. We must answer, who is this passage speaking about? The first view, which I find untenable, is the Arminian view, which says that this is a description of true believers who have sinned and they lose their salvation. The problem with that is that they have to explain away all the passages that teach salvation is a free gift of God, not based on anything in us, but based solely on the blood of Jesus Christ. Even in this chapter, we have the author making it clear that Christ's sacrifice was once for all and perfected us and took away our guilt. So if this passage is speaking about losing our salvation then Christ's sacrifice would not be once for all and it would not perfect us and it would make his sacrifice useless. So it's not clearly not speaking about true believers that have lost their salvation. Now, some early church fathers said that this and other passages are indicated, indicating that there is no forgiveness for sins that are committed after baptism. And so they said, once you're baptized, then there's no forgiveness of sins after baptism. Now, they met, when they talked about that, they met big sins like denying the faith if you were persecuted or sexual sins or murder or idolatry. However, the problem with that view is that Christians did sometimes commit such sins and later repented of those sins. Does that mean that they could never be forgiven of those sins? 
Others argued that forgiveness could be obtained one time after baptism, but no more. You can only get one time forgiveness. This view was propagated for those following Hermas, which was uh, who wrote the shepherd in AD 140, the shepherd of Hermas. Tertullian, who was more strict, condemned Hermas for the concession because he thought it was dangerous. However, others were more tolerant and they extended what Hermas said and made uh, these concessions indefinitely, but they demanded that you had to pay penance. And so they said every baptized person is required periodically to seek by confession and penance absolution for sins committed today. And so the problem with that is there really is no different than the Jewish sacrificial system. Remember every year the Jews would bring their sacrifice and as we have already talked about, it was a reminder of their sins when they brought the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, which is what the author of Hebrews is writing against and saying that Christ is superior to the sacrificial system. We've looked at that in the first 10 chapters of the book of Hebrews. So why in the world would another system be developed similar to the Old Testament sacrificial system, which is exactly what penance is. Any system that teaches that someone can lose their salvation or teaches penance can restore your salvation is a total contradiction to what God's word teaches us, which makes it clear that grace is a free gift offered to us by Jesus Christ. Still, there's another view. And it says that this is talking about genuine believers who renounce their faith. But punishment that is described here is not hell, but some sort of terrible temporary judgment. This view is propagated by Zane Hodges and lines up nicely with his view of non-lordship salvation, that a person can believe in Christ and then deny and oppose the faith and yet still be saved, but they'll just lose rewards. In another sermon, we already went over this issue of non-lordship salvation. But just read about the judgment right here in the text. In verse 27, it says, But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. So saying that that is a description of some sort of temporal judgment where one loses rewards is crazy and it weakens the severity of the warning in the book of Hebrews. Still, there is another view which says this is a warning, not true of believers. They can't lose their salvation, but it's saying what would happen if they apostatize, which true believers can never do. And so it is hypothetical and it's used to scare believers away from abandoning their faith. However, I'm not so sure what the purpose of a hypothetical warning serves. The people are really believers. How could God cast them hypothetically into hell? And if they hypothetically apostatize, none of it would even be possible. So what's the whole point? It makes no sense. Does not deter anyone from anything. I believe the correct explanation of this scripture. And remember, I gave you those false ones because theology is important. We need to understand why we believe what we believe. The correct view in my belief is that this passage is a warning to those who had made a profession of faith and were associated with the church, but they were in danger of God's eternal 
judgment if they turned back to Judaism. And so these people showed all the outward signs of being believers. And so if we looked at these people today, we would say, well, they're believers because they go to church. And so they're, they're Christians. They, they showed all the outward signs of professed faith, but they did not possess faith. So they professed that they were believers, but they really weren't believers. To abandon Christ's sacrifice and to return to Judaism would show that they never truly trusted in Christ in the first place and that it was all a farce. Now, the main problem is seen in verse 29, where we read this, by which he was sanctified. I hold to the view that this is not the sanctification that we read about in verse 14, in verse 29, it's speaking of a fruitless sanctification and a religious separation and an outward appearance of sanctification, which often happens when people are part of the visible church. And so these people are part of a church. Perhaps they've even been baptized. They probably take communion. And so they're set apart in the sense that they're joined with a church, but their heart has not been transformed by God's saving grace. When pressure comes... Or when things get difficult, this person will show their true colors and they prove they are not truly saved by repudiating their faith. And so it is just like many of the people of Israel who were sanctified among the nations, even though many of them were faithless. So now that we know who this is addressing, let's work through this passage of scripture this morning. First, I want us to see a fearful warning if we go on sinning deliberately. A fearful warning if we go on sinning deliberately. This is not talking about the so-called normal sins that every believer commits every day. Every believer commits sin. So if, if they're talking about kind of the normal sin, then no one could be saved. But instead, he's speaking of those people who are remaining in sin and refuse to repent, thereby rejecting the gospel and walking the path that leads to destruction. The fact is, as Christians, the majority of our sins are indeed deliberate and willful. We know that we're going to sin. Before we ever sin, we know that we're about to sin. You're tempted with sin. You look at the temptation. You look at the sin. And you make a decision. Am I going to do this or not do it? You know you're about to sin. It is willful sin in the majority of our lives. And we do it anyway. So this is not talking about just this willful sin. It's not even talking about believers with sin that they continually struggle with because scripture is clear that when we sin, God is gracious to forgive us if we confess our sin. So what this is speaking of is about the person who continues in deliberate sin, knowingly renouncing the faith and deeming Christ's sacrifice as worthless. It's a total defection from the faith and Christ as Savior. This person renounces Jesus and says that he is not the Son of God and that he did not really die for sinners. Let me just be clear. You don't fall into this sin. It's not, oops, I accidentally fell into this type of sin. This is someone that sets out to repudiate Christ. How do we know this? Well, look at what the scripture says. It says the ones who are 
coming or committing this sin are those who, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So they were in the church. They heard the teaching on the meaning and the significance of the death of Christ. They knew the truth. They heard the truth. They were aware of the truth. They knew Christ is the sinless son of God. They knew that he is the once for all sacrifice. They knew he fulfilled the requirements of the Old Testament sacrificial system. They knew the truth about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. They at one time claimed to be believers, but their profession of faith was false. And rather than enduring in faith, they abandoned their faith. They were forsaking the assembling of themselves together as we looked at last week. And then look at what the author says. He says, do what the... Uh, he says what these people are doing is to treat the shed blood of Jesus Christ as worthless and to trample on the son of God. It is turning from the only way of salvation and making yourself an adversary of God. And the only thing that awaits these people is the fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The author of Hebrews wants it to be abundantly clear that there are consequences for turning away. There is no sacrifice for sin and a terrible judgment. Many people that simply attend church would do well to fear this warning, lest they become hardened to God, unless they, in their heart, consciously reject Christ's work. As they go on sinning. It is a fearful warning. But what's the logic. Behind the judgment. Because the author of Hebrews. Follows a logical. Argumentation. So. We then see the logic. Behind future judgment. He's continuing his argument. And he once again makes an appeal. To the Old Testament. And he compares the Mosaic law with the new covenant. And so he lays out the logic behind why he is saying what he's saying. And he uses this kind of argument. It's the argument from, from the lesser to the greater. The lesser is the rejecting of the law. The greater is the rejecting of the grace of Christ. And so it's a from lesser to greater argument. So look at verse 28. The author is stating something that every Jew knew, and they knew it well. If someone were to brazenly defy the law of Moses, they were stoned to death on two or three witnesses. This is what the law said. For example, Deuteronomy speaks about it. it speaks about idolatry. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the hosts of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out your gates that that man or woman who has done this evil thing and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses. The one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witness shall be first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. And so you shall purge the evil from your midst. 
Now that sounds harsh. We read that and we're like, wow, that sounds terrible. So you can commit idolatry and two or three people come and give witnesses. And then in the Old Testament, you got stoned. You got killed for that. There was no second chance. There was no place for mercy. Deuteronomy 13.8. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him. The law was applied to everyone. So he's simply stating that they, what they already knew. He says, you guys know that this was the Old Testament law. But he's arguing from lesser because he has already shown in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's superior to the Levitical priest. And he has inaugurated a new covenant which is superior to the old covenant. And so this is what the author is saying. If such a judgment, you guys know that if somebody committed idolatry in the old, under the old covenant, you guys know that we had to stone them, that they were stoned and killed based on two or three Witnesses. That's the lesser old covenant. Imagine how severe then the judgment will be for rejecting the greater of the new covenant. So here is the punishment for rejecting the law of Moses, which was lesser. But what about those who reject Jesus, who is greater? Don't miss the force of the message. Some want to say, but we are under the age of grace. And that seems to make sense and sounds nice. So the Lord's not going to deal as harsh with people as he did under that Mosaic law. But this verse says the opposite. He's saying that there is a terrifying judgment that waits those who reject God's only son. He actually describes these apostates that reject the son of God in three Phrases. Let's look at those three phrases. He gives us three phrases. First, he says that they've trampled underfoot the Son of God. They've trampled underfoot the Son of God. To trample something under your foot is to say that it's worthless. This seems to indicate an absolute denial of the deity of Christ. It is taking the Son of God, which is particular language, and the highest title given to Christ in the book of Hebrews, and it's grinding him into the dirt. I picture it like this when, when I've seen people um, smoking, they're smoking a cigarette, and they take their cigarette, and they flick that cigarette on the ground, and what do they do? They take their foot, and they grind it, right? Put that cigarette out. I picture it like that. The author is saying it's a rejection of the supremacy of Christ, which he spent 10 chapters establishing and arguing for. Christ is God's final word. And it's taken the exalted son of God and squashing him under your foot like a bug. It's a picture of a horrific sin and it's rejection of the identity of Jesus Christ an attack on his person. But he also says this, that they profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. The first charge is to dispose of the identity in the person of Christ. This despises the work of the cross. This person knows and understands and maybe even profess Christ. And as I've already said, the word sanctified is an outward sense to give all the appearance of sanctification. So this person probably celebrated the Lord's Supper. And in all outward appearances, they look to be a genuine believer. 
but now they consciously reject the blood of Christ. To profane means to treat as common. They may be a, it may even be a direct reference to taking communion, even though this person did not have a genuine faith. It could also mean viewing the death of Jesus as common. Either way, this person shrugs off the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ's death as ordinary. Just says, oh, that's just ordinary. It's just meaningless. Jesus' Jesus' death is it's just like anybody else dying. They treat the blood of the new covenant as meaningless. It's just common. Listen, the blood of Christ can also be rejected by those who say they can live and do the best they can. And God will accept them into heaven if they're just good or religious enough. And so they say, well, if I just do the best I can, I'll get in. That's a rejection of the blood of Christ. That profanes the covenant because it says that I can go to heaven without the atoning work of Christ. I can go to heaven by my own work and confesses his blood to be worthless. There's a third thing, a third phrase. It says that they outraged the spirit of grace. This is the only place in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of grace. The Holy Spirit imparts grace, which is God's undeserved favor, to us through the sacrifice of God's Son. It is the Holy Spirit that enlightens our minds and seals our hearts for adoption and regenerates us. <clears throat> to outrage the spirit of grace is an act of arrogance. They deliberately close their eyes to the light. They are just, they're just like the Pharisees of the day when, when they attributed the work of the Spirit to Satan. This is the spit in the face of God who, who through the Holy Spirit offered a free pardon made possible by the death of Jesus Christ. And it renders them lost. Imagine with me, if you will, a man who is homeless. He has absolutely nothing. No car, no house. No anything. The only things he has is stuff that he's able to rummage through when he goes through other people's trash. He's cold and he's hungry. And the reason he's in this situation is because of his own sinful choices. A wealthy man comes along, sees this man in his destitute situation. He offers to care for the man, he will pay for all of his bills. He will put him in a nice house. He will give him a car to drive. He will never have another want in his life. But the homeless man is ungrateful. And he musters up everything he has. And he spits in the rich man's face and tells him his offer is worthless. Now that would be terrible. And yet it would not be as bad as outraging the spirit of grace. Hearing and knowing the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and rejecting it and calling it worthless, that person will suffer justly throughout eternity is what the author is saying. Now, some would say that Jesus does not, does not punish people. Jesus doesn't do this kind of thing. Jesus is nice and he's kind and he's innocent. I got a picture of him hanging on my wall and he just looks so nice. He's the lamb. We read accounts of where he cared for people. And we read about how Jesus took the little children. And, and I even have that picture. Jesus has the children sitting on his lap. That's who Jesus is. Let us remember that when he comes, he's not coming as a lamb, but he's coming with wrath and in judgment. 
Let us remember that it was Jesus who said that if, if you cause one of his little ones to stumble, you might as well tie a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the sea. Listen to the words of Jesus. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 49 and 50. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Matthew 18, 8 and 9. Now, just so we're clear, Jesus isn't saying mutilate yourself. That'd be a whole nother sermon. Then the king told the Attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, 13. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Matthew 25, 46. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go to hell where the fire never goes out. Mark 9, 43. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Again, same thing. Mark 9, 47 and 48. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. Luke 20, 17, 18. That all sounds real nice, doesn't it? All Jesus. You don't get the Jesus of the Bible without the doctrines of judgment and hell. That's why Spurgeon said what he said. That's why he said, think lightly of hell and you will think lightly of the cross. Without it, the cross loses its meaning. And so we had this fearful warning. Then we had this logic behind the future judgment. Lastly, let's see this morning that we know God's judgment is certain and terrifying. We know God's judgment is certain and terrifying. In order to drive home his message, the author he quotes, uh, the, the author of Hebrews quotes loosely from the Song of Moses, which is found in Deuteronomy 32, verses 35 and 36. I also think it's important to note that the author this whole time has, including, has included himself with the readers by using the first person plural. He says, let us and we. And here again, he says, we. He says, we know him who said. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy 32. He's using the quote from Deuteronomy to reinforce his argument and to prove that God has the right to take vengeance and judgment. It's inevitable. And, it, and its impact on, on everyone. There will be equal justice for all. The emphasis of the verse is on the fact that those who have wronged God 
will receive God's vengeance. And there's no hope of escaping it. God says he will repay sin with a fierce vengeance. Now, some people might scoff at that and say, yeah, right. But one only has to look to the cross, to the death of God's son, to see how much God proved he hates sin. God poured out his wrath on his only son. Against our sin. Jesus bore our sin on the cross. Listen to how J.I. Packer describes it in his book, Knowing God. The physical pain, though great for a crucifixion, remains the cruelest form of judicial execution that the world has ever known was yet only a small part of the story. Jesus' chief sufferings were mental and spiritual. And what was packed into less than 400 minutes was an eternity of agony. Agony such that each minute was an eternity in itself. We think of the cross and we think it's terrible. And the point is not that God is some sort of cruel monster because it was God himself in the second person of the Trinity God the Son who bore the wrath of God the Father the point is not that we can somehow bring some sort of moral standard to God and sit in judgment on God and say that 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 God is morally objectionable but to say that sin is morally repulsive to God. This is what we struggle with so much and we find so hard to understand. And while we're busy treating sin in our lives like it's no big deal, the cross of Christ is a declaration to every single person just how terrible sin is and how holy God is. In the cross, we see Jesus, the beloved Son of God, bear our sin and take the wrath of God the Father as it's poured out on Him. This is what led J.C. Ryle to write in his book, Holiness. Terribly black must that guilt for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God could make satisfaction. Heavy must that weight of human sin be which made Jesus groan and sweat drops of blood in agony at Gethsemane and cry at Golgotha, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took the wrath of God for our sin. We know that judgment is certain and terrifying because we have evidence of God pouring out his wrath on his own son for our sin. The sin that we treat like it's no big Remember, the author is speaking to those who had received the knowledge of truth 
They had been associated with the people of God. And he's saying, you will not escape. You can leave the fellowship. You can deny the sacrifice of Christ. You can pretend like, you know, like, like it's no big deal anymore. But you will not be removed from judgment. There is no escape. You either come to him as savior or you face him as judge. And the author then says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen to me carefully. For the true believer, there's nothing greater than to fall into God's hands in repentance because there you will find restoration. However, for the person who has rejected God, it's dreadful because of divine judgment. It will be perfect. The horrible truth is that you will receive what is coming to you. In fact, the person that rejects God will receive what they have lived for their whole life, separation from God. And it is eternal. It is forever. I read this statement by Kent Hughes about forever. If one could travel at the speed of light for 100 years until he escaped this galaxy and then travel for 3,000 years at the speed of light to reach the next galaxy, repeating the process 100,000 million times until he reached every galaxy, eternity would have just begun. Forever. We all live forever. It's just where you will spend it. Hmm, that was interesting. <laughs> the author of Hebrews is very literally trying to scare the hell out of his readers. That's literally what he's trying to do. The point is that God's judgment is terrifying the apostle john writes about it in revelation chapter 6 when he opened the sixth seal i looked and behold there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains calling out to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand so what are we to do with this message we hear people proclaim that they don't believe in a God of judgment and that God is a God of love, 
People who hold this view do not believe in the God of the Bible. Instead, they believe in a God of their own imagination. Their God does not exist. Listen to what God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. That sounds great. Doesn't it? All these great qualities, mercy and gracious and God's slow to anger and he's forgiving. But we have to keep reading. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I know what some will say. Because I've heard the arguments before. But that's the God of the Old Testament. As if God changes, that would be to deny the immutability of God. Because God never changes. But I understand some will say that we're in a different dispensation now. We're in a dispensation of grace is what they say. I follow Jesus. He was always gentle and kind and loving. Let me remind you again. Of what I said earlier, that Jesus spoke more about the terrors of hell than anyone else in the entire Bible. He called it a place where the worm does not die in Mark 9, 48. Remember earlier I read where he said if someone causes one of his little ones to stumble, it's better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. He said that hell was a place of darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said that you'd do better to pluck your eye out. He described a rich man in hell as being in agony and flames. He described those faces as an eternal fire, which was the exact same word he used for eternal life in Matthew 25. The author of Hebrews is making it clear that the judgment is coming one day. Especially for those who reject the Son of God. It was for those in the Old Testament, as they rejected and disregarded the law. And even though God is the God of the Old Testament, He's also the God of the New Testament. And he is rich in mercy and love towards all who repent of their sins and trust in Christ as Savior. However, he, was ter- he is terrifying in his judgment for those who reject his son, who is the only acceptable sacrifice for their sin. Some might say, well, am I in danger of committing this sin? Have I committed this sin? Have I, have I done this in my life? Please keep in mind those who are in the most danger of committing This sin are those who knew the truth and had associated themselves with the people of God. It is not those uh, who are terrible sinners. It is those who think, I'm not a sinner. I'm not a sinner like that person's a sinner. I'm a good person. Surely God's going to let me in. I don't need to trust in a crucified Savior and His blood to atone for my sin. I can get myself to heaven. In other words... It is the person who goes to church and is considered religious and does not see their need for the blood of Christ to cover their sins. Yes, 
the cross reveals the reality of sin. Yes, it shows just how terrible sin is. Yes, it shows us the wrath of God. Yes, anyone who thinks that they can get into heaven without the blood of Christ will find themselves in eternal damnation in hell. But listen carefully. Because of the cross, we also see how real God's love is. The cross displays to us just how wide and how long and how high and how deep God's love is. The cross is a demonstration of what it took to satisfy God's wrath. In it, we have the full payment of our sin debt. If this is what it took for God to love the world, that he would offer his only son, the only one that could measure up to God's perfect standard, then God was willing to do it. Listen, the death of Christ is what it took for God to be reconciled to us and for the creator to be made right with the created. And in that death, we see the fullness of the love of God. For God so loved the world that he required the death of his son as a provision for us. This is a fearful warning of future judgment. You either receive Christ or judgment. Those who reject Christ after hearing the gospel and being associated with the people of God will fall into the hands of a living God. And it will be terrifying forever. It is not a place you want to be. However, just as Jesus stretched open his arms on the cross as our atoning sacrifices, his arms are still open. They're still open. His blood still covers our sin. He still makes us right. We are still washed white as snow. And all we have to do is fall into his arms and find God's mercy and grace that will cover all of our sins. Do not wait until it's too late and fall into the hands of condemnation. Two kinds of people, church. They all live for eternity. Some in heaven with Christ. Some in hell without. That's it. There's no in between. There's no, well, I can work my way through it. It's one or the other. You say, well, pastor, I, I know that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to heaven. And what, are you, what are you doing about it? What are you doing with this message of scripture what are you doing with all these things that jesus says about hell to give us warning that it's coming you using that to tell other people about jesus that he saves us from an eternal hell maybe the lord's spoken to you this morning i will give you a chance to respond i'm gonna be standing down front maybe you need need some prayer this morning maybe for the first time the gospel made sense to you and you realize you need Christ. Maybe you've been in church, but you've never placed your faith in Jesus. You can have that opportunity this morning. Maybe you just need to pray in your pew over your life and over your witness. However God's spoken to you, I'm going to give you the chance to respond to that. Here in just a moment, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to invite you to come at that moment. If you don't want to, that's fine. If you want to hang out afterwards and talk to me, we can do that as well. Let's close a prayer.